0: been in this series, Modern Family Ties, looking at the, uh, the difference, well not really the difference, but really the, the context of marriage and family and relationships, and one thing I know is that what family has become is something different than it was, and it's, it's just this kind of moving target of what is called family now, which makes it really difficult uh, always to define and understand and to manage and to do well. Regardless of how families and marriages and relationships have changed over the years and how they continue to evolve and grow, one thing remains the same, and that's this: that family, marriage, relationships are difficult and hard. Uh, That we don't always get well. We don't get to choose our family, uh, and sometimes we're stuck with ones that we wish we weren't stuck with so much. Um, And it's just difficult. And one of the reasons why relationships are so difficult is because to, until you're in one, you're never in one. And every relationship you're in is different than the one you used to be in. And one thing that makes marriage hard is that before you're married, you're not married. And, and so you're trying to figure it out as you go to build it on a fly, on the fly, and it's hard to do. And so without, the, without, the, without a picture, without a, a model, it's hard to figure out on our own. Uh, if you've ever put together a puzzle, and you got the puzzle box, you take the lid off, and what's on the on the lid? What's on the li- the cover? Picture what it's supposed to look like, right? So that's the picture of what it's supposed to look like. You had all the pieces inside. You take the cover off. What do you do with the cover? Huh? Put it somewhere you can see it, right? For reference. So you know what you're building, right? And so similarly, like in marriage, in family and relationships. If we only had a picture to tell us what it was supposed to look like, it'd be easier that way, wouldn't it? Well, we do have a picture, and it's here. This is our picture. This tells us. Otherwise, you just got a bunch of shambled, mumbled pieces, and you try to figure it out. This right here gives us the picture of what marriage is supposed to be, family is supposed to look like, relationships supposed to function. The difficult thing, though, is that the Bible though it gives us a picture, the Bible is not a marriage manual. You can't go to the book of marriage in the Bible to figure out how to do it right. You can't go to the book of family, the book of children. And so it's it's not a manual per se like that, but it does gives us principles and pictures to look at so we know what and how we're supposed to build. Does that make sense? You tracking with me? There's a couple principles the Bible gives us, especially in the context of marriage, that we really need to pay attention to that get kind of a bad rap that either are revolted against when we talk about them or just ignored. And so if you're married, understand this, if you're single, understand this more. Because if you're single and looking forward to one day getting married, please realize the picture of the model that's been given to you from the Scripture of how it's supposed to look. So these two principles, one that most people don't like and one that's often ignored, one of them is this. The picture to the wife, the model to the wife, is to submit to her husband. And I know the moment I start talking about that, many people go, but note The Bible doesn't say women are supposed to submit to men. That's not what it says. What's in the Bible is not gender dominance. It's not that women are are, are subservient to men. The principle, the model, is addressed to wives to their husbands. Wife submit to your husband, not women submit to men. Do you understand? And so as I read this, I think, well, woman, when you pick a husband, you darn well better pick good. Do you understand what I'm saying? (laughs) Because you're told to submit to the man that you chose. So the onus is kind of on you to pick good. You better pick well. You best pick one that you feel safe submitting to. Now, if you're already made that bed, and you don't want to sleep in it anymore, it doesn't mean go pick someone else you want to submit to. It means figure this thing out. Please understand, wives, please understand how sensual submission is. Don't revolt against it. You have great power under your control. See, intimacy is usually defined by lips, hips, and fingertips, but it's more than that. It's much more than that. When a wife willingly submits to her husband, places herself under him as her guide and her lead, that's pretty intimate. Trusting. Builds connection. Don't dismiss the power and sensuality that is the act of submission in biblical marriage. And honestly, submission's the easy part. I wish husbands were simply told to submit to our wives. I wish that's all. Because we're told at the front of this whole thing, submit therefore to each other, husbands and wives and wives and husbands. And then Paul unpacks it and says, wives submit to your husbands. I wish he just left it with husbands submitting to our wives. That's the easy part. Husbands are told then not just to submit, but to die. Woman, you think you got it hard to submit to your husbands? We have to die. At least you're still alive. You understand what I'm saying? Like for husband, it goes deeper. The instruction moves from submission to crucifixion because Paul says, love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her How? through crucifixion. I wish I just had to submit, but I have to die. See, once I choose that as a husband, as a man, Submission is easy. Because at least I'm not dead. Do You understand what I'm saying? You look like you're just glossed over like this is all, like I'm speaking some foreign language to you. Does this make sense or this doesn't make sense? Do you you just don't like it? I mean, you're just sitting there like, I don't care. Some of you are like, I don't submit to my husband. I'm not submitting to you either, Pastor. And some of you guys are like, I-, I am dying. I'm dying right now. You're killing me. <laughs> God, if you don't like this, go to a different church. Give me some people who understand. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Here's what I know. Once you decide to die for, everything else is easy. If you're married, you got to get this. If you're not married yet, but you want to be married one day, you better understand this before you get into one that you're not willing to die for. The reason things are so hard is because we haven't decided on the front end to die for. And so submitting to is difficult. These two instructions. Submit to and die for. They are what make people move and lay down my dream for our dream. If submission and dying for isn't in place, I will hold on to my dream at the sacrifice of our dream. But once I'm willing to die for, I submit my dream to our dream. Do you understand? Do you understand how powerful this stuff is? The our of us becomes more important than the me of us. And here's why this is so difficult for marriages to get, for families to understand, for relationships to work. This is why. Because we are all in relationships like the relationship that has been passed down to us. See, when we talk in our Western world about family, we go immediately to my spouse and my kids or my dad, my mom. In ancient times, when you talked about family, they went immediately to great-grandpa and and the generations we don't have a concept of that very well and so in the context of marriage in the context of relationships in the context of family there's a huge difference between being mentored and being modeled mentoring is good we need people that's part of this the Bible study uh, for for young ones. it's part of the mentoring process to go through to understand to have it's helpful as a guide It's helpful as advice it's helpful as suggestion and wisdom Mentoring is good, but modeling is powerful. Modeling goes deep. Modeling is lasting. What has been modeled is hard to change. And so we have to start thinking in terms of our home, in terms of our family, in terms of our relationships, in terms of our marriage, what has been modeled for us? What's the home that has been modeled? Because that's likely where we will at least start when we make our own. Some come from a home with a distant father who was in the garage or the golf course more than he was at the dinner table. And so the concept of a father is skewed that way. Some come from a home with an overindulgent mother who's not just a helicopter mom, but a lawnmower mom, just mowing down everything in the path of their kids so they never have a sticker. You know, never get a flat tire. They're just taking care of everything. And this kid grows up as not being able to care for themselves. And they want to marry someone who's going to do everything for them. Some people have grown up in a home where there was no rules and there was no boundaries. And life is just chaotic and wild. And you just figure it out on your own. There was no supervision. It was just a free-for-all. And life didn't always go well when that's the course. Some people have grown up in a divorced home where there isn't a mother and a father. And so that, you know, you don't learn by modeling what it means to have this longevity of marriage through the good and the bad, the ups and the downs, the thick and the thin, the forgiveness and the reconciliation, the intimacy, the sensuality, the submission and the leadership and the dying for. You don't see that. So when you get into those relationships on your own, you just kind of figure it out and it's hard. And that's why it's so important to keep in front of us the picture So we know what it is we're building because what's been modeled for us hasn't always been picture perfect, right? Do you understand? And to keep the picture of the ideal even when the real has been less than ideal. Just think for a moment. If you have children, just think for a moment. If you have grandkids, think for a moment. If you If you're not married yet, you don't have kids, just think for a moment about your future. What if you are who your son or daughter will one day marry? Marry someone just like you. What if if you are who your son or daughter will become? I'm going to be your mirror. What if your kids or grandkids respond to stress the same way you do? What if your kids or grandkids handle money the same way you do? What if your kids or grandkids respond to difficulty the same way you do? What if your kids or grandkids have the exact same faith that you do? Guess what? They will in all those scenarios. Your life, understand this, your life has such incredible influence that your actions will ripple and echo down through the next couple generations. And the sooner you understand this, the younger you are when you understand this, the more powerful and profound your life will be. You matter. How you live, what you do matters. And so I'm going to give you proof of this over 60 years of biblical history from from one family's life. So you read, I'm going to cover 60 years. Now, when I was growing up, my mama told me I was a good storyteller. That was usually in the context of telling stories and lies to get out of trouble, but I was really good at it. So I've tried to, I've asked God to redeem that part of me so I can be a good storyteller in this context. So I'm going to tell you this story of this family over a 60 year period, okay? And it starts with this man named Joseph. And in the Bible, the majority of his story is told in Genesis 37 through 50. Joseph was that guy, the coat of many colors, Joseph in the Technicolor Dream Coat, if you're a theater person, it was that guy. Now, Joseph's family of origin was not good. It wasn't balanced. It wasn't healthy. It was was very dysfunctional. He had an overindulgent father who fathered children from four different ladies. That's kind of dysfunctional if you're not aware of that. He was the, Joseph was the youngest for the majority of time. Most, much of the story, he was the young one. His older brothers hated him. They wanted to kill him. Rather than killing him, they sold him to some marauders. So eventually, he became to work for this Egyptian government official. While working for this Egyptian government official, he was accused of rape of this official's wife. He didn't do it. But because of political things, he had to, the official had to do something, so he threw him in jail. Now, Joseph grew up hearing the story, hearing the, the idea that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, right? Like he had been to Sunday school, saw the flannel graphs, he heard the stories. And he grew up believing God loves me and a wonderful life. But let me ask this. You grow up in a home where your daddy has kids with four women. Your brothers hate you, they want to kill you, they throw you in a dried out pit, sell you into slavery, you go to work for this government official, you get accused of a heinous crime of which you are innocent and you're thrown in jail. What about that suggests to you that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? How many of us would be in that scenario thinking, no, 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 God still loves me. Has a one-. Would any of us go there? Yet what was it about Joseph? See, he had this commodity in him that was unshakable. Where did that come from? See, Joseph lives as if God was with him even when all evidence suggested God had abandoned him. Understand this, Joseph lived with this assurance that God was with him, even though all evidence around him, everything he could see and perceive, suggested God had a bad, have you ever been there? When it feels as though, God, are you not paying attention if you're even there, if you're even real? Things have gotten so bad so fast, I have every right to question your goodness, your ability to move your very existence. Have you ever been there? If anybody could have got there, Joseph was, and yet he lived with this overriding confidence that God was with him, even when all the evidence suggested otherwise. Where did that come from? Does that just happen? While Joseph was in jail, Pharaoh's couple of his workers uh, got thrown in jail too, and they had a couple dreams, and they wanted to know what the result of those dreams were, kind of what they were pointing to. So they asked Joseph through this series of Joseph interprets these dreams. He goes, "I got good news for one of you and bad news for the other of you. One of you is going to go back and work for Pharaoh, going to get your job back. The other one's dead." And sure enough, it happened just that way. And right before the guy was released to go work for Pharaoh again, be reinstated to his job in the government. Uh, Joseph says, hey, when you go back, remember me, because I shouldn't be here. You guys say, yeah, don't worry, man. I got you back, no problem. I'll, I'll get you out. And he sits there for two more years. Have you ever been in that place where you had a little bit of hope and then it was just crushed? And again, where does that commodity of faith come from to say, I know God's with me, even though there's no proof of it? And after two years, Pharaoh has this dream and it vexes him. The king of Egypt has this dream. He's like, who can interpret my dream? None of my guys. And then suddenly the guy who was in jail for whom Joseph would the dream says, I know this guy was in jail with him. He can do it. So they go get Joseph. They clean him up. They give him a shower. They shave him. They put the Egyptian clothes on him. They give him Egyptian makeup. i give him a couple Egyptian tattoos. So he looks like he's from that culture. And he goes before the king and he says, King, here's, let me interpret, here's your dream. I can't do it, but God can. And my God says, Your dream means this. You're going to have seven years of abundance and seven years of famine. And he says, I'm going to tell you what to do. I know you didn't ask me, King, but I'm going to tell you what to do because I got a plan. So here's what you should do you should start storing grain from all this abundance over the next seven years, just store it all raise people's taxes and tax them 20% of all the grain they produce and build government-owned silos in every major city in the nation and start filling those silos with grain so that when the famine hits, you can sell it back to your own people at exorbitant rates and make a ton of money. And then when the other nations around you start to starve to death, they'll come to you and they will beg you to let them give you their money so they can get some grain. It's going to set you up. And so Pharaoh thought what? He's a Democrat, so he said, "No, no, we don't want." No, it's kidding. It's kidding. He said, "Absolutely, Trump 2020." And so, you know, he's like, "Yeah, let's make all the money we can." And so, he and so he enacted, he said, "I need someone who's going to wake up every morning with this as their agenda because we only got seven years to put this in place." Joseph, you're the guy. And Joseph went from the dungeon to the palace in one day. In one day. Because he knew that even though all the evidence around him suggested God was nowhere, he knew that God was still with him. Realize this, even when no one else sees you, God knows where you are. You are not lost to him. Even when no one else knows about you, no one else knows of you, when it feels as though you've been forgotten and left For dead, God sees you and he knows where you are and not just you, your children as well. And when it feels like your children have been left out in the cold by the world around them, when they have been discouraged, disdained and destroyed, God sees them and knows them and can reach them from the dungeon to the palace and all but can do in a day what people can't do in a lifetime. You have to have that faith. That even though it appears as though God has abandoned, He has not. And to live and to act as if God is with you, even when this evidence suggests otherwise. Where does this come from in Joseph? Through the course of these seven years of abundance, things are going great, man. But then after the seven years, the beginning of the eighth year, the famine hits and it is severe and people are starving. And the neighboring nations are starving. And Joseph's just sitting back running the program. Man, God has elevated him. He's blessed him. He's rewarded him. But eventually, this famine hits his hometown. And his father and his brothers, his family are starving. And his father says, I've heard there's grain in Egypt. There's this prime minister there. who has got this incredible, incredible program. he got a ton of grain. Take a bunch of money and go buy some for our family. And so his brothers set out for Egypt, the brothers who sold him the brothers who did him wrong. And as the brothers approach Egypt, they make an appointment with a prime minister who is Joseph, though they don't recognize him as such. I mean, he looks like an Egyptian. He walks like an Egyptian. And the words of the Bengals look like an Egyptian. You know, I just... Go to Spotify, youngins, and type in Bangles Walk Like an Egyptian. Good 80s music. They don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them. Think for a minute. Have you ever had someone close to you do you wrong? If you, you ever have that opportunity to just get them back a little bit, you know what I'm saying? Like Jesus would approve. So here he is in this moment, and here he is before his brothers. The same ones who hate him, the same ones who dis- disowned him, the same ones who sold him. And he has all the power in the world to level justice rightly so. And he's concealing his identity before him and then suddenly he just can't take it anymore. And he just, he just tells him who he is and rather than throw him in prison and rather than punish him, he embraces him. And he forgives. And he reunites the family and blesses. Where does that come from? At all these turns, have jo- has Joseph responded like any of us would? No, he's so much better. Where does that come from? What would make him respond to such kindness and reconciliation? What would make him have this commodity of faith that says, even though you intended it for evil, God intended it for good? What would make him believe that even though all the external circumstances around my life appear as though God has abandoned me, I know God's with me. What would make him live and believe that? Well, in order to understand, we've got to go way back in time when Joseph was a little boy. Like, I I love the Bible, man. I love the stories in here. Let's go way back when Joseph was a little kid. See, this whole thing started with this man named Abraham. Like, way back. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Everybody say Abraham. Everybody say his son Isaac. Okay, now Isaac grew up and he had two sons. Everybody say Esau. Everybody say Jacob. Okay, so Esau was the oldest and Jacob was younger. Jacob would become Joseph's daddy. Esau is his uncle. Esau's older. Now, what's significant about being the older one, as as the firstborn, you get the inheritance. It's called the birthright. And the birthright was a double inheritance of what everybody else got. Not only that, you became as the firstborn with the birthright, you became the judge and the authority over the entire family. So this was a big deal. And those after the firstborn were the second, third, whatever, they got very little. Now, Jacob was, how you say, he is a mama's boy. He was coddled, he was tender. She would cut the crust off the peanut butter the sandwich. Just like cut it sideways like he likes it. Sing him a song at bedtime. Read him a book. By the time you're 30, you're like, look, Mom, I really need to. This was him. Esau was rough. He was a hunter. He was hairy. He liked riding dirt bikes or, or camels or whatever it was. They rode back there for old riding. And one day Esau's out hunting and he comes home from hunting and he's hungry. And he comes home and he smells what Jacob's cooking. Can anybody smell what Jacob is cooking? WWE, The Rock. No big wrestler fans here, huh? Okay. Anyway, Esau is all frontal lobe. Okay, he's an all frontal lobe guy. Like, there's no deep thinking. There's no critical thinking. He's like he's like Gaston in, in Beauty and the Beast. You know what I'm saying? Like, who has hair like Gaston? But like I mean, that's Esau. And he says, Hey, I'm hungry. How much do you want for that stew? And Jacob says, How about you give me your inheritance? <laughs> and, and again, Esau completely front, frontal lobe. All right, now, done. You got it. And he just sells his, his entire inheritance for a, a bowl of soup. And so Genesis 27 comes around and Isaac is old, he's going blind and he realizes it's time for me to bless my firstborn. He apparently doesn't realize the deal that was struck for a pot of soup. And so Esau goes out to hunt, thinking he's going to get the inheritance. He goes out to hunt for his pops before he gets the birthright. And while he's out through a series of events, Isaac's wife conspires with her son Jacob to fool her husband into thinking that Jacob is Esau. So, Isaac, or, or so, so Jacob will get Esau's blessing. I mean, it, it's completely messed up and dysfunctional, this woman. Like, she wants her youngest to get the oldest, what's rightfully the oldest. So, she's gonna fool her husband into tricking him into doing it. And so that's what they do they trick Esau out of his inheritance and it goes to Isaac. And once that blessing was given and that culture was a legal document, it could not be changed. And so forever, forever, Esau loses out. on what was rightfully his. So he comes in and actually wants the blessing and I was like, I already gave it. Said, yeah, but you didn't give it to me. So what I've done, I've done. I can't go back. I'm sorry. And at that point he saw something clicks inside. And he says, boy, to his younger brother, the moment the time to grieve dad's death is over, I'm going to kill you. And he'd have done it. They were crazy. And so out of desperation, Jacob's mom Rebecca says, look, you got to get out of here, man. Your brother is on a rampage, and he will kill you if you don't leave. And so Jacob leaves and lives with his uncle Laban. Never to see his mom again. Sometimes sin is super costly. And So Jacob leaves and he's gone for decades. And while he's gone, he gets filthy rich. And while he's gone, Genesis 29, he ends up marrying two women. Like he falls in love with this one and she's the... the, the, the beautiful one, and he wants to marry her, and the culture is to let the oldest one get married first, and so he works to marry this girl, and then he gets tricked into marrying her sister. Kind of like he tricked his brother. It's so weird how things come. And so he marries this girl, Leah, and he didn't really love her, but Rachel he loved, and so he worked for another seven years and married her. And they go into this kind of fight with each other about who can give them the most kids. It's ridiculous. This conception fight. Who can conceive? And it gets so bad that they each give him their maid to start having kids with their maid. Four women. Every time he comes home, he's like, seriously, again? Like, How many kids are we going to have here? So I mean, be careful when you start saying you want a biblical marriage. Like, what, kind of, what part of the Bible... Like, what part of the Bible are you talking about? This is some crazy stuff. And over the course of 20 years, Jacob has 11 sons with four different women. And in Genesis 32, through this other series of events, God finally comes to Jacob and says, Jacob, why don't you go back home? And he says, well, God, you know mom and dad are gone, but (laughs) big brother's still there. And he's still got a hit on my life. And on the journey back home, Jacob gets word that Esau is coming. And with Esau are 400 men. If you're Jacob, what's going through your mind? <sighs> Dang it. Chickens, they come home to roost, right? Like, And he's scared. And so, as we all do, when we get scared, we talk to God. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you, I love what he does. He says, God, I want to remind you of what you said. He said, But you said, I'll surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. I love this is something we gotta learn. When we get to that point, even at our own doing, even because we're at fault, you go back to what God has said and you say, God, I just want to respectfully remind you that you said, even though I messed up, you said, and you are more faithful to your word than I am to my my sin. You have to honor your word. Even when we're at fault, you go back to what he has said because he has to honor that. God, I realize I'm in a tight spot, my bad, but you said, right? And if you can attach your situation to something God has said, He will honor what He has said regardless. He has to. And so in chapter 33, Jacob devises this plan. He looked up, saw Esau. Jacob looked up, saw Esau come with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. Now, you get this. They're walking. Esau's coming. 400 guys, right? This is what he does. He put the female servants and their children up in front. Now, you understand why, right? Like, he thinks Esau is hell-bent on on just annihilating his family. He thinks all he's going to do is destroy us after what I've done. So who goes up front? You understand what I'm saying? This is a messed up, right? Like, this is so bad. I don't know why I'm smiling. It's so rotten. Hoping that if Esau starts slaughtering people, all right, he'll slaughter the maidservants and their kids. And maybe he'll get tired by the time he works his way through all the bodies. Then Who? Leah and her children. Because afterwards, she was simply the wife he tolerated, not the one he loved. And then what? Don't miss what the Bible says. Of all his kids, how many were named? God's telling a story here. He wants to make sure that we understand Little Joseph is watching all this go down. He's got a front row view. He's never met Uncle Esau. He's never seen He's heard stories. And he's watching all this go down. And what he sees is Esau running towards the family. And I'm sure Joseph's thinking, oh, here it comes. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like when kids, when little ones are, are, can't really compute what it is they're seeing, it doesn't make sense to them, it's like so traumatic, they just want to like, ah. And he watches Esau run towards his family. And Esau ran to meet Jacob. And he embraced him. And he threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him. And they wept together. And he saw his uncle Esau work the most excruciating, difficult repair of a relationship I think that the world has seen to this point. Reconciliation with one who naturally would harbor anger, resentment, bitterness, and pain. That act, let me suggest this, that act of reconciliation played over and over in Joseph's mind as he grew and as he matured and as he began to manage the relationships in his own life when people would hurt him, when things would conspire in life against him. And he saw the faith of his uncle. Esau that actually believed God could turn something evil into good for God's glory and His blessing. He saw it all. So that when Joseph then had the opportunity to respond to those who similarly hurt him, cheated him out of a childhood, cheated him out of his father's inheritance, had the opportunity then to trust God's plan rather than to assume God didn't care. When he's looking at his own brothers and deciding, how do I respond in this moment? And what do I believe about God? Because of what I suggest you, Joseph saw modeled to him by his uncle Laban way back then in the processional of his family. When he saw his uncle Esau say, I believe that God is a God who is in control even when it looks like he's not, even a God of restoration and reconciliation. When he sees his own brothers, he reverts back. To what was modeled for him. Do you understand? Do you understand? Watch what he does. Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him outside. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. It's me. It's me. His dad's still alive, but his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified. And Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. They like, yeah, yeah, we understand that. We get that. That's why we're so scared. He says, don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save the lives that God sent ahead. Like, it's okay. God had something great planned. Just like Esau knew when he was reconciled with his brother. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept and Benjamin embraced him weeping and they kissed all his brothers and they wept over him. And I suggest to you, it's because of what Joseph saw modeled for him in that relationship between his daddy and his uncle that he could then say with great certainty, what you intended to harm me, God intended for good. I love you. And I know that God sees me. And in that moment, because of the faith of his uncle Esau, Relationships were repaired, and the family that was once fractured was healed. So here's the question What is your faith teaching those who are watching? Right? What's the echo of your life? What's the ripple effect? What I know is this. What you do now will be what those who are watching your life will repeat. You understand? And the younger we are, we understand this, the better we are. Our lives will be repeated in someone's our relationships will be the model others will follow. What I know is this that we cannot do this well on our own. We need one, a picture of what to follow, a picture of what we're building, and the picture comes from here. This stuff hadn't changed. You can't rewrite it. You can't redefine it. It is what it is, and it's good, and it is valuable, and it works. And not only that, we need other people walking with us, following the same picture, the same principles, who are walking with us in this, because we can't go this way alone. I am so thankful for the models that I have had. I thank God Almighty for giving me the model of a daddy who read his Bible regularly. For a mom and a dad who were intimately and intricately involved in our lives at church. As our children's and youth leaders, thank you, parents. Those of you who are involved in your kids' lives at the ball field of the school and especially at church, thank you. I'm so thankful I had a model of parents that put their kids first ahead of success. I'm so thankful that I had a mother and a father that loved each other and were committed to each other that got it wrong a lot and got it right a lot and that weren't so prideful and arrogant that they couldn't in humility apologize to each other and to their children and ask forgiveness. I'm so thankful for the model. I'm thankful for the model that sees grandparents and parents who stay together through thick and thin, through good and bad, who refuse to quit and refuse to leave, even though that is the easiest thing oftentimes. See, there's more at stake than just our happiness. Embrace the ideal, even when the real that you're living doesn't match the ideal of this. Embrace the ideal because we need the picture because without the picture, we're doomed. Let go of the offense like we talked about a couple weeks ago don't be so easily offended the best way to be happy long the best way to be happy longer is be less offended just so don't let it offend you be reconciled. Let go of the debt that's owed you, legitimately owed you. At least you let go. Of it. Whether they respond, as that, it doesn't matter. Even if they're dead, it doesn't matter. Let go of what's in here that you hold on to. Why? For your sake, yes, but for a bigger purpose because you're setting the stage for those who are coming after. And I don't care how young you are, there are those coming after you that will follow you. Set their stage. Live their model. Let their echo of your life ring in their ears such that it's worth following. So the question is, what is my faith echoing? What is my trust in this God echoing? What's the ripple going to be? Because there'll be a ripple. Do you understand? Do you understand? You young ones, please don't pass this off as if I'll do it when I'm older. Because here's the thing. You are echoing in your own life right now. You are living right now ripples that will affect your own life later. This is your picture. This is your guide. And church, let me tell you, this is why our lives and faith are so important. Do you understand? Do you understand? So the question is, what is our faith echoing and what does our trust echo? And our prayer is simple. <laughs> God help us. Right, right. Would you pray with? Me?